Bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratty. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, January 20th, 2015. Tonight is President Obama's State of the Union Address, which we will cover in more detail in next week's podcast. I'll also tweet key news items from the State of the Union tonight as conditions warrant. It will be interesting to see what references there are, if any, to affordable housing and, more likely, tax reform. Given that, I'll start off our general news section today with some upcoming deadlines that could or probably will have major policy and fiscal consequences if Congress doesn't address them properly. Then I'll share some news about the new tax reform working groups that Senate Finance Committee Chairman Orrin Hatch and Ranking Member Ron Wyden created last week. These working groups could play a significant role in shaping tax reform legislation in the new Congress. Then, we move on to our low-income housing tax credit section, where I'll talk about occupancy protection guidelines for housing that participates in the low-income housing tax credit program and receives HUD assistance. Next, I'll discuss a new HUD report that provides a valuable overview of the population served by the low-income housing tax credit. Then, I'll share some news about the disparate impact Supreme Court case that could determine what constitutes discrimination under the Fair Housing Act. In state-level news, I'll talk about what Pennsylvania is doing to promote green building through its 2015 Qualified Allocation Plan. In this week's New Markets Tax Rate segment, I'll talk about two state bills that could help Minnesota and Indiana compete with neighboring states for New Market Tax Credit investor dollars. Then, in Historic Tax Rate news, I'll explain why the state historic tax credit and other programs could be in danger of elimination in Utah. In our Renewable Energy Tax Credit section, I'll share some details regarding the new Investment Tax Credit Guidance for small wind energy projects. Then, I'll wrap things up with praise for solar energy and the Investment Tax Credit from what some will think is a surprising source. If you're ready, let's get started. The new Congress has only been in session for two full weeks, and it already has quite a list of fiscal speed bumps it needs to navigate. These are deadlines that could have serious policy and fiscal consequences if they're not properly addressed. The first one is just around the corner, February 27th. That's when the continuing resolution for funding the Department of Homeland Security expires. As you may recall, Congress passed the Cromnibus legislation in December to keep most of the government funded through fiscal year 2015. However, the Homeland Security Department was only funded through February 27th. They were the continuing resolution piece of the Cromnibus legislation. The rest of the government was funded all the way through the end of September. That was the omnibus piece. The short-term funding for Homeland Security was a move taken by House Republicans as a stance against President Barack Obama's executive authority to defer the deportation of some immigrants. 
the next major date is March 16th, when the debt ceiling will be reinstated. The current government borrowing authority could be extended through the summer without addressing the debt ceiling, and that's through the use by the Treasury Department of extraordinary measures. That means the debt ceiling must be raised by the summer to early fall of 2015. The debt ceiling currently is about $18 trillion. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, I note, last November said that Congress would not shut down the government or default on the national debt. Another date to watch is March 31st. That's when the, quote, doc fix expires. In other words, most physicians will experience a 21% cut in the Medicare payment under the sustainable growth rate formula unless Congress takes action, which they historically have done. Then, two months later, on May 31st, the highway bill expires and the highway trust fund runs out. And then, of course, another big date is October 1st. That's the date when the appropriations for fiscal year 2015 will expire, marking the return of sequestration, unless other matters are addressed in some way. Finally, December 31st is the approximate deadline to renew tax extenders on a retroactive basis. Any extension that went much farther than December 31st would have trouble being implemented by the Internal Revenue Service in administering the tax filing season for 2015. There's a helpful infographic of the upcoming fiscal speed bumps that was released by the Committee for a Responsible Budget. You can find it on their website at www.crfb.org. In other tax reform news, Senate Finance Committee Chairman Orrin Hatch and Ranking Member Ron Wyden announced last week that they're creating five bipartisan working groups to develop a foundation for tax reform in the 114th Congress. The working groups will meet regularly and produce a comprehensive report in May. Group members will walk through the current code, led by Joint Committee on Taxation staff. They'll discuss the pros and cons of the current code, score tax reform issues or have tax reform issues scored, examine interaction between code sections and how tax reform could affect them, and discuss various proposals. Each group is going to be led by at least one Republican and at least one Democrat. The five working groups are on community development and infrastructure, business income tax, individual income tax, international tax, and savings and investment. Of that list of five working groups, two are of most interest to the tax credit community. Those two are the Community and Infrastructure Group and the Business Income Tax Group. The Community and Infrastructure Group will encompass the local housing tax credit, the new market tax credit, and the historic tax credit. And that committee will be led by Republican Senator Dean Heller from Nevada and Democratic Senator Michael Bennett from Colorado. Many of you may recall that Senator Heller keynoted our local housing tax credit conference in Las Vegas last December. The Business Income Tax Working Group will examine renewable energy tax credits. That group will be headed up by Senator John Thune, a Republican from South Dakota, and Senator Ben Cardin, a Democrat from Maryland. Hatch said he's from the groups so that he knows what people are thinking. But, he said, furthering tax reform and any future provisions or proposals won't be bound by what the groups recommend. Follow me on Twitter for the latest updates. You can find me at at Novogratik.
To start off our affordable housing section, I have important news for owners of properties that participate in both a U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD, assistance program and the Low Income Housing Tax Credit program. HUD issued a memo last week to clarify occupancy protections for tenants of those units. HUD said it issued the guidance in response to reports that some owners may be attempting to terminate the tenancy of HUD-assisted tenants who do not meet low-income housing tax credit eligibility guidelines. The memo stated that an owner can only terminate tenancy in the limited circumstances prescribed by HUD regulations and by the lease. The lease agreement details the grounds for terminating tenancy, and these do not include failure to meet low-income housing tax credit requirements, such as low-income housing tax credit specific income and student eligibility rules. Now, Let's say that during the annual or interim recertification, an owner finds that a HUD-assisted household has become over-income or no longer qualifies for a HUD subsidy. In that case, the owner will terminate assistance to the tenant. But, in accordance with the lease agreement, the tenant retains all rights under the lease, including the right to occupy the unit. In another scenario, let's say a loan-composing tax credit property owner finds that a HUD-eligible household has become over-income for the loan-composing tax credit or it doesn't meet another local housing tax credit requirement. The owner may offer incentives for the household to move voluntarily. That is, the owner may do so as long as the incentives are not paid from Section 8 or FHA project funds. In this scenario, the owner should first inform tenants in writing that they have the option to stay as HUD assisted tenants under the terms of their lease. This is to make sure, according to the HUD, that the choice of moving is truly voluntary. Now, if you have any questions, but how the guidance could affect your property, please contact my partner, Susan Wilson, in our Austin, Texas office, or Thomas Stagg in our Metro Seattle, Washington office. In other news, there's a new report that was released by HUD's Office of Policy Development and Research, and it gives an overview of the tenants served by low-income housing tax credit units. HUD worked with state housing agencies to collect data on ethnicity, disability status, family composition and age, household income, monthly rental payments, and use of rental assistance, among other things. Now, one important caveat, though, is that not all long-fencing tax credit properties were included in the report. And of the ones that that are included, there are some for which data is incomplete. Furthermore, agencies from New Mexico and Washington, D.C. did not submit tenant data at all. With that in mind, The report can still help state agencies, developers, and policymakers better understand who is being served by the low-income housing tax credit. Now, for one thing, the report found that the median household income for tenants was just a little more than $17,000 a year. However, median income varied quite a bit across states. The median income was below $10,000 for Kentucky, Puerto Rico, and the state of Washington and it exceeded $20,000 in Florida, Guam, Hawaii, Maryland, Virginia, and Wyoming. Another interesting figure is about 46%, nearly half, of reporting households earn 30% or less of the derived area median income. This suggests that households served by the Low Housing Tax Credit Program are often the ones that need it the most. The report is titled, Understanding Whom the Low Housing Tax Credit Program Serves, Tenants in Local Housing Tax Credit Units as of December 31, 2012. You can find a copy of it at www.taxcredithousing.com. And 
In the next week or so, I'll be posting a blog with more details on the report. In other news, I have an update on a case that many of us in the Long Beach Tax Credit community have been following for a number of years now. Borrowing a last-minute settlement, which isn't expected, the U.S. Supreme Court this week, namely tomorrow, will hear oral arguments on a case that may ultimately decide what constitutes discrimination under the Fair Housing Act. It's a decision that directly affects low-income housing tax credit properties. The case involves a lawsuit filed by Inclusive Communities, a Dallas-based nonprofit. The case claims, or I should say the original lawsuit by Inclusive Communities, claims that the Texas Department of Housing and Community Affairs discriminated on the basis of race by approving too many long-buzzing tax credit properties in minority areas and not enough of them in non-minority areas. Now, it doesn't claim that discrimination was intentional. Rather, Inclusive Communities argues that intent doesn't matter. The suit contends that the Texas Housing Agency's policies had a disparate impact on a group of persons and increased, reinforced, and perpetuated segregated housing patterns based on race. More specifically, inclusive communities argued that the Texas Housing Agency's policies resulted in the racial segregation of 92.29% of all family local and tax rate units into minority census tracts in the city of Dallas. A decision in favor of inclusive communities could affect the location of future low-income housing tax credit properties as well as cause changes to some established practices at existing low-income housing tax credit properties. For instance, some have suggested that criminal background screenings might be found to have disparate impact. This is the third time in three years that the Supreme Court has agreed to hear a case on disparate impact. However, the other two cases settled before oral arguments. In this case, a district court and the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled in favor of inclusive communities. So, the state of Texas appealed to the Supreme Court. Dozens of groups have filed friends of the court briefs on each side. Many members of the long term tax credit community hope that the court will finally hear the case and issue a ruling. Now, many hope the court will rule against the plaintiffs. Others are hoping the court will rule in favor of the plaintiffs. But, in either event, Any ruling would provide guidance regarding whether intent to discriminate is needed to violate the Fair Housing Act. As I noted, the case is expected to be heard tomorrow morning, Wednesday, January 21st. In state-level news, the Pennsylvania Housing Finance Agency, which administers low-income housing tax credits in Pennsylvania, recently released its Qualified Allocation Plan for 2015. The plan includes a provision to incentivize energy efficiency in affordable multifamily housing. More specifically, 10 points may be awarded to developments that meet passive house certification requirements. For those who may be unfamiliar with the term, passive building is a set of design principles used to maximize energy efficiency while maintaining a quantifiable comfort level. In a nutshell, it uses continuous insulation through its entire envelope. The building envelope must be extremely airtight and use high-performance windows and doors. According to Pennsylvania Housing Finance Agency, actual passive house certification is not required to get extra points on a low-income housing tax application. Developments just need to meet the requirements after the building is inspected by a third party. There's a Passive House Institute U.S. and an international Passive House Institute. The Pennsylvania Housing Finance Agency said points would be awarded for developments that meet either the national or international certification requirements. 
while worldwide Passive House reports more than 40,000 buildings meet the standard. There are only 130 passive buildings in the United States. This according to an article from the Green Building Law Update. Furthermore, only 11 of these are multifamily or commercial buildings. Now it's going to be interesting to see if and how the new provision in Pennsylvania's Qualified Allocation Plan could increase the popularity of passive building design. Brian Hudson, Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Housing Finance Agency, said in this Green Building article that the agency may receive 130 low-funding tax applications while only being able to fund 40 of them. Therefore, he said that the points available for passive building would be key in the highly competitive tax credit process. In addition to the passive house points, Pennsylvania will also award points to developments that meet Enterprise Green Communities criteria. However, there are no extra points available for lead projects. Time will tell, and that's one of the reasons why we report on this specific provision in Pennsylvania, time will tell whether any other states will take the passive housing route as a way to promote green building. I also note low commencing tax credit applications in Pennsylvania are due January 30th. To find a copy of Pennsylvania's 2015 Qualified Allocation Plan, go to www.taxcredithousing.com. Before we close out this section, I'd like to invite all of you who would like to learn more about the Low Commencing Tax Credit Program to join us for a live webinar that we'll be hosting next week. It's designed for those who are new to the Low Income Housing Tax Credit and for those who have worked in the industry for a few years and would like a refresher. It's the Novogradic LIHTC 101 The Basics webinar, and it will be held Friday, January 30th. It will be from 1 to 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time. You can register now at www.novoco.com. In community development news, a new bill was introduced in Minnesota to create a state new markets tax credit program. Assistant Majority Leader Representative Ron Kresha earlier this month introduced House File 1 in order to foster job growth throughout the state of Minnesota. If passed into law, House File 1 would adopt the Minnesota New Markets Jobs Act. The Department of Employment and Economic Development would be able to certify $250 million in qualified equity investments under the state New Market Tax Credit Program the individual project cap would be $10 million. The state new market tax credit, like its federal counterpart, would be a credit equal to 39% of the qualified equity investment made, and it would also have a seven-year compliance period. While the tax credit would not be sellable or refundable, it would be transferable. The state new market tax credit would become effective the day following enactment and apply to premium tax returns originally due on or after December 31, 2015. House File 1 was introduced on January 8th and was referred to the Greater Minnesota Economic and Workforce Development Policy Committee. Now, Minnesota isn't the only state considering enacting a state new market tax credit. An Indiana state representative introduced legislation proposing a new market tax credit program for his state last week. And if passed, it would make Indiana the 17th state with a new market tax credit program. The bill was introduced by State Rep. Jerry Tor, a Republican. It calls for an Indiana credit that is similar to the federal new market tax credit. It would establish an $80 million annual cap for the Indiana Economic Development Corporation. Tor's bill would be retroactive to January 1 of this year. It was referred to the Committee on Ways and Means. To become law, it would need to come out of the committee for a second and a third reading. 
be approved by the Indiana House and Senate, and then signed by Governor Mike Pence. Last year, a similar bill was introduced by Representative Ben Smaltz. That bill established an allocation limit that would keep annual claims of the tax credit below $10 million, or I should say it would have established, because the bill died in committee. Still, community development advocates haven't given up on Indiana getting its own new market tax credit program. Illinois, Kentucky, and Ohio, all of which are bordered with Indiana, already have state new market tax credit programs. That means that a state new market tax credit could go a long way in helping Indiana compete with its neighbor for investment dollars supported by the new market tax credit. Copies of both the Indiana and Minnesota state NMTC bills are available at www.newmarketscredits.com. And if you have any questions about either state and the progress of their state new market tax credit bill, feel free to reach out to Tom Bosha in our Cleveland, Ohio office. Turning to historic tax credit news, some state tax credits in Utah, including those for historic preservation as well as low-income housing, could be targeted for elimination when the state legislature convenes next Monday, January 26th, for a 45-day legislative session. An article in the Standard Examiner newspaper in Ogden, Utah, notes that several tax credits could be likely targets of those seeking to clean up the Utah State Tax Code. Last summer, the state's legislature's Business and Labor Interim Committee voted to write a bill file to include repeals of corporate and individual tax credits. That bill file is now expected to be drafted for potential review by the legislature. Some of the tax credits mentioned are rarely used, the Utah Tax Commission is required to remove state tax credits that fail to meet certain criteria, primarily minimum use standards. However, other tax credits mentioned in the article as possibly being repealed are considerably more significant. The state historic tax credit, for instance, has been widely used. It allows a 20% credit for costs incurred with qualified rehab of a historic residential building with a minimum investment of $10,000 over three years. The credit goes back to 1994, and more than 1,100 projects have used the tax credit as a catalyst for more than $119 million in private sector investment since. And experts say that for every dollar of the state tax credit, there's a generation of a minimum of $4 in private investment. Now, the Utah local business tax credit, meanwhile, is a 10-year 9% credit, and there was a estimated $300,000-plus allocation in 2014. While many lawmakers have spoken in favor of eliminating underused credits, at least one legislator has warned that any individuals using the credits should be notified of the legislature's intent. Now, you can learn more about the State Historic Tax Credit Program in Utah and in other states at www.historictaxcredits.com. As we learn more about the possible repeal of either the low income tax credit or the historic tax credit in Utah, we'll report back. In renewable energy tax credit news, the IRS last week issued guidance on the investment tax credit. More specifically, it provided performance and quality standards that small wind energy property must meet to qualify for the investment tax credit. The term qualifying small wind turbine is defined as one that has a nameplate capacity of 100 kilowatts or less. 
and it must meet quality standards set forth by the American Wind Energy Association, or OEA, Internal Electrotechnical Commission, or IEC. In general, a small wind turbine manufacturer may certify to a taxpayer that the product meets performance and quality standards of OEA, or IEC, by providing the taxpayer with either a written certification or another way to retain the certification for tax record-keeping purposes. The certification must contain the following information, according to the IRS. Name and address of the manufacturer, property name and model number, name and address of the eligible certifier, the nameplate capacity of the wind turbine, and a signed and dated statement by the eligible certifier that the property complies with the performance and quality standards of OEA or IEC. Now, notice 2015-4 is effective for small wind energy property acquired or placed in service after January 26, 2015. To learn more about the guidance, go to the February issue of the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits. And if you don't have a subscription yet, go to www.novoco.com journal to sign up. Another renewable energy news, a new report says solar energy is more affordable than ever, and it pumps more than $15 billion per year into the U.S. economy. The report goes on to say that the growth in solar is due in large part to smart and effective public policies, such as the Federal Investment Tax Credit. Now, what might be considered by some to be surprising about this report? Well, it was released by the American Petroleum Institute. The report, entitled State of American Energy Report, contains comprehensive sections on the U.S. solar and wind industries. It's the first time those topics were included in the annual report. The Solar Energy Industries Association contributed to the solar portion of the study. It said that solar is now the fastest-growing source of renewable energy with enough installed capacity to power nearly 4 million homes. There are enough projects in the pipeline to double that total by the end of 2016. It also predicted strong continued growth in all sectors of the U.S. solar industry for the next two years. That's because the ITC is, in effect, at the higher 30% rate through December 31, 2016. The report said the ITC has full dramatic growth in solar installations due to the market certainty provided by multiple-year extensions. Ron Resch, president and CEO of SIA, called solar, and I quote, one of America's greatest success stories, end quote. In commenting on the report, he noted that solar installations last year were 70 times higher than in 2006, and there's nearly 30 times more solar capacity already online. The report also included information on wind energy, which is credited with attracting up to $25 billion a year in private investment and generating 85,000 jobs. The wind portion of the report says that the rapid advance of wind energy is remarkable when considering the unstable policy environment in which it has been forced to operate. The Federal Production Tax Credit, or PTC, has operated under short-term extensions of one or two years for a number of years now. The most recent PTC expired December 31, 2014. That instability has created a boom-and-bust cycle for the wind industry, the report noted. The American Wind Energy Association helped with the portion of the report on wind energy. You can find the report on the American Petroleum Institute's website at www.api.org. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. I invite you to join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. Next week, I'll provide some commentary on the President's State of the Union Address 
and what it could mean for affordable rental housing, community development, historic preservation, and renewable energy. This is Michael Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novoco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. Novogratik and Company, LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novoco.com.